I have called up in all my years of sorcery Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week, we'll be covering The City of the Singing Flame. This is, we're now free of Hyperborea. Uh, Woo! Oh, wait, this, I liked Hyperborea. I liked it too, but it's fun to move on. You know, you can't, you can't linger, you know? Yeah. I, hopefully we're going to warmer weather now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I think, by my figuring, this is the th- our third time in the 20th century with Clark Ashton Smith, right? Because Ubosafla is the 20th yep. century, right? Mm-hmm. And then wasn't um, the one about the wine, wasn't that set up in the 20th century? Uh, or no? Vintage from Atlantis? Yeah. I thought or it was, was a little bit in pirate early. Times? Yeah, pirate times. Okay, yeah. so this is our second time in the 20th century. Yeah. Welcome. Here we are, the 1930s. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Contemporary to Clark Ashton Smith, in fact. Exactly. And we're going to do, so our next four stories are all the, the Philip, I guess we'll call it the Philip Hastain cycle, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's fun. I guess I'll just go right into the details of the story, shall I? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So The City of the Singing Flame was originally published in the July 1931 issue of Wonder Stories. Uh, it was the cover illustration uh, for, that, for that magazine, um, and it was featured alongside stories by a host of names. I'd never heard before. So these are writers that, that haven't been featured in the weird tales that I talk about every every episode. So these are writers like R.F. Starzy, Dennis McDermott, Garth Bentley, um, and various others. And actually really cool about this issue is if you go to pulpmags.org, mm-hmm. uh, they have a scan of the whole issue. Um, That's which awesome. Is well worth checking out. I'll definitely link to that in the show notes then. Yeah, it's it's super cool. There's like the there's the cover illustration you can see. There's actually a, an interior illustration for the for the work, which is worth looking at. It looks like something out of like 1970s era heavy metal. Like, <laughs> the art style is like, it's clearly not a Clark Ashton Smith illustration, but um, it's kind of fun. And there's a, like a, uh, a sexy little uh, drawn image of Mr. Smith himself to accompany the story. So, Yeah. And I've uh, linked, uh, we'll link it on the website, but I've also, if you go to our Google Plus page, I've tricked it out with the City of Singing Flame images. Oh, nice. Um, so for a comment I made on our last thing when we were talking about what we were going to cover next, and I mentioned not liking City of Singing Flame, and we're talking now about the logistics of how it was all published, I feel Uh, like this is a good time to bring up that after it had been published in Wonder Stories, and he had also written the sequel, which we'll do next week, Beyond the Singing Flame, um, he sold them both to a a person who decided he was going to run them back to back, which makes sense. You've got a story and you've got a sequel story. But then instead of running back to back, what he did was kind of write a bridge, his own bridge, in between the two. Unfortunately, around the same time, Smith lost his original versions of this. So that's why on sites like Eldritch Dark and such, you have this one complete story that that includes City of Singing Flame and Beyond the Singing Flame, when that's not 
actually how they're supposed to be done. It was an editorial decision made around 1940. Anyway, that's part part of my critique. Uh, will come out in the next couple of episodes. Isn't necessarily with City of the Singing Flame. It turns out it's with Beyond the Singing Flame. Right, and it's kind of confusing reading them. I mean, it's not that confusing, but no, I, a, you can see the I, yeah. the line when you look at it. Right, and I was uh, reading them. I was reading the scan from the pulp mags and mm-hmm. the one on Eldritch Dark, like side to side from the beginning. And there's there's some differences in like the the tenses and the way the story's set up because it's set up in Eldritch Dark as if everything's already happened and he knows the entire story from City right. Singing Flame to Beyond. Uh, but in and the that, pulp those one, ch- yeah, there's a bit more mystery and it makes it a little cooler. Yeah, those were changes added by the editor. Yeah. Boo. I know, boo that editor. Just run them back to back as part one and part two. It's not that hard. Yeah, exactly. So the introduction to this story goes on a little bit longer than what I pulled for the reading, uh, but the gist of it basically is that... Um, Philip Hestain, our, our new hero for the next couple of stories, has a friend who has gone missing, this Giles Angarth. Um, and they're both writers of fantasy and science fiction tales. And before the main narrative starts, Hestain has this kind of introduction, um, and it comes out that uh, Angarth has left a, uh, a mysterious package on a table addressed to Hestain. And just disappeared. Yep. Fallen off the map. So when people came around looking for him, they were like, huh, he's not here. Here's a package addressed to Philip Hastain. Guess we should send it to him. Yeah. I wonder what the chain of evidence of that is like. Yeah. Or I like I like that they say that it was just like left because he finds in the second story finds the table. Like in my mind, it was just mm-hmm. left on like kind of like a crummyly built picnic table like outside of actually in my mind, this whole thing is around. It's like set in the version of Clark Ashton Smith's cabin that is in my mind yeah so like yeah. like uh-huh. kind of just a lean-to like not like in the middle of nowhere california with like some rudimentary like wooden furniture outside where giles angarth was is in sierra nevada oh it is yeah mm-hmm. um, um smith makes a joke that he's gonna go out looking for this ridge that's mentioned in the book and see if he can find any more of the boulders and in fact he oh, sent really? lovecraft a a natural idol on that he found there just a piece of stone that looked like it should be an idol sent it to Lovecraft and then later on sent the story Lovecraft is like, Oh my god It's like awesome. total fangirling over it. Yeah. You're like, this is so amazing. I need to know more about this place. Nerds. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I totally get it. Uh so the the letter that accompanies this mysterious package reads as follows Dear Hestane, you can publish this journal sometime if you like. People will think it the last and wildest of my fictions, unless they take it for one of your own. In either case, it will be just as well. Goodbye. Faithfully, <laughs> Giles Angarth. <laughs> when Giles Angarth disappeared nearly two years ago, we had been friends for a decade or more, and I knew him as well as anyone could purport to know him. Yet the thing was no less a mystery to me than to others at the time, and it is still a mystery. Sometimes I think that he and Ebonly had designed it all between them as a huge insoluble hoax that they are still alive somewhere and are laughing at the world that has been so sorely baffled by their disappearance. And sometimes I make tentative plans to revisit Crater Ridge and find, if I can, the two boulders mentioned in Angarth's narrative. In the meantime, no one has uncovered any trace of the missing men or has heard even the faintest rumor concerning them. The whole affair, it would seem, is likely to remain a most singular and exasperating riddle. I love this this intro to this whole sequence of stories because it's so not pressing. 
Like mm. there's no there's no threat to Earth. There's no like <laughs> like no Elder God is awakening and and Angarth is like publish it if you want. If not, right. no big deal. It's like what, whatever you want to do, dude. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's not really like hide this or I'm writing this at greatest peril or none of that stuff. No, not at all. So uh, Angarth. Let me see. It's uh, July 31st, 1938, and Angarth Which is, is in the future for actually, Smith, by the way. Uh, well, that, that's actually not true. The original date oh. is August 1st, 1930. They changed the date oh. when they put the stories together. Oh. You bastards. Okay. Sons of bees. Yep. Um, yeah, so he's uh, uh, Angarth has gone for a walk around Crater Ridge, which is near where his cabin is situated and he's uh it's pretty desolate there's very little vegetation and he's looking at all of the um even though he's i guess he's researched the area and he knows that there was no volcanic activity there he still finds like very weird stones littering the area and it looks very ancient um and he's looking around to find some cool stones that he could keep that look cool and he finds a clearing with these two isolated boulders that are kind of similarly shaped and they look kind of like old, old ancient columns. And they're made of like a green, dull, soapy stone. And he thinks it's weird. Yeah. I mean, it is a little odd if you think about it that they, like when you think about what a column looks like, because at first I was like, eh, you know, two boulders that kind of form a column-like thing. And then I was thinking, well, if they actually look like column columns, that would be a lot weirder. So he, you know, which... I have to say, unlike some people where you say, oh, that's a really, really terrible move that they made, he just goes down and, and starts looking around them and happens to step between them, at which point, boom, or <laughs> swirly music. Do you think that's the noise that it makes? No, it's think... probably more of a vertigo sound. What's a vertigo sound? Uh, from the movie? Oh, okay. Uh... I, thought, I thought you meant like what a person who has vertigo hears when they have vertigo. Vom, vom, vom. <laughs> I was standing in the midst of a landscape which bore no degree or manner of resemblance to Crater Ridge, a long gradual slope covered with violet grass and studded at intervals with stones of monolithic size and shape ran undulantly away beneath me to a broad plain with sinuous open meadows and high, stately forests of an unknown vegetation whose predominant hues were purple and yellow. The plain seemed to end in a wall of impenetrable golden-brownish mist that rose with phantom pinnacles to dissolve on a sky of luminescent amber in which there was no sun. In the foreground of this amazing scene, not more than two or three miles away, there loomed a city whose massive towers and mountainous ramparts of red stone were such as the Anakim of undiscovered worlds might build. Wall on beetling wall, spire on giant spire, it soared to confront the heavens, maintaining everywhere the severe and solemn lines of a rectilinear architecture. It seemed to overwhelm and crush down the beholder with its stern and crag-like imminence. I liked this part. The, the landscape before me vanished in a swirl of broken images. There was a feeling of intense hyperborean cold. Oh, snap. <laughs> and that made me think, does this world, is this the world where Hyperborea actually existed? And does, is Philip Hastain, does he know that Hyperborea was a real place? I'm going to go with yes. Me too. Yeah. 
Because nobody would use that word unless they knew Hyperborea was a real exactly. place. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, so he falls through a weird kaleidoscope of time and space, and he's flipping around upside down, and then he finds that he's on a different place. And in fact, I think it's really funny the way he puts it. Uh, so he wakes up on this different planet, and he says, I experienced a mental confusion equivalent to that of a man who might find himself cast without warning on the shore of some foreign planet. Yeah. <laughs> Look, this guy writes science fiction, so he's thought a lot about right, how that's that would true. feel. That's he's very like, this true. is confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then he like runs an experiment, right? He, he, he goes back through to see if he can get home. Mm-hmm. And then doesn't he like step through it at like a different angle and it like takes him longer to get where he was going or something? He looks around first and he sees that he takes like a good stock of the the area and he sees that the the grass is violet and the trees are purple with yellow and there's a giant road with um monoliths lining each side and he follows the mon- monoliths back down and he finds the two columns again. And then he flips back and then he decides that he's going to start keeping a diary to chronicle this this weirdness. Oh, and I like that he describes it. The way he describes it is the lines of rectilinear architecture, Uh which means it's very like square. So it's like big square skyscrapers. And so it looks like a modern city, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. And I, you know, for all that we get the City of Singing Flame stuff, we don't really find out what the point of the city is like what kind of commerce goes on here, whether it's yeah. like the capital of something, what these buildings do other than the temple. We really don't have any introduction to the city and yeah, its natives. No. He, he goes back, he starts the journal mm-hmm. and then he goes back in the morning armed with a revolver, yes. uh, which is awesome. Although I like the second, I like in the second story when, when, uh, when Philip has stayed, <laughs> gets his adventure gear better, but this is yeah. our first adventurer. Because he takes uh, a revolver and sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> um, and so he go, he comes back with his revolver, and this time he's like, I am going to go, and I'm going to see yeah. what the deal is with that city. Yeah. Um, but hold on, I can't remember where the second is. But yeah, he does... Um... He does, uh, he does step... The second time he goes through, he steps through at a different spot. Right, yeah. And it takes him longer to get through, which was very strange. I like that, though. I think it's cool because it, like, it, it implies some kind of like weird physics to it yeah. or like weird set of rules that you have to step through in the middle. Otherwise, like your body takes longer to hit wherever it's going to hit. Right. Yeah, it makes you wonder how they're getting, like how it's set up. I mean, there's also a lot of unanswered questions about this world. I have some theories. Oh, good. I can't wait to hear. I have zero theories. Are we going to hear the, hear the theories now or are we going to wait till the Oh. Um, we should I wait till the end. We should wait. I was gonna, yeah, yeah I was gonna wait till the end. So he comes back in, and this time he steps at this different angle. Uh, this time he's gonna follow this road towards this building. This time he does see inhabitants of this world, and these things are completely bizarre. He describes them as totally unlike anything that we are accustomed to think of as human or animal. Uh, they must have been ten feet tall, and they were moving along with colossal strides that took them from sight in a few instants beyond a turn of the road. Their bodies were bright and shining as if encased in some sort of armor, and their heads were equipped with high, curving appendages of opalescent hues which nodded above them like fantastic plumes that may have been antenna or other sense organs of a novel type. So there's just some crazy 
business going on here. <laughs> yeah. And I think like we we come to learn what he's describing there is what he thinks are what he comes to think are the one of the natives of the world, right? Right. Uh-huh. Right. Um, but yeah. it's also um, there's no there's no shadows on this world. Light mm-hmm. comes yeah, from yeah. everywhere. So. And there's no animals and bunnies. Yeah. And nope. Mosquitoes. There's no insect or animal life. Yeah. Uh, you think that that means that if a bunny hops through the um, the portal on Earth, it just gets zapped into oblivion? Maybe it mm-hmm. turns into its true self. Maybe I have a new theory now, guys. <laughs> oh yeah. What is the Maybe true self? All of the what's the true self of a bunny? Well, one Maybe of these creatures guys in the shining armor. <laughs> this might be the like most cockamamie read between the lines <laughs> ever. So he sees giant armor-clad bunnies. <laughs> And the plumes on their head are actually their bunny ears, which he can't yes. even recognize because they've grown to such monstrous heights. Yep. He was probably just eating mushrooms in the... He's he's sitting there he's... dying in a clearing. On <laughs> yeah, actually in the cabin <laughs> all along. Okay, so this actually takes us to our second reading. He gets closer and closer to the city. I became aware of something which at first was recognizable as a vibration rather than a sound. There was a queer thrilling in my nerves, the disquieting sense of some unknown force or emanation flowing through my body. This was perceptible for some time before I heard the music, but having heard it, my auditory nerves identified it at once with the vibration. It was faint and far off, and seemed to emanate from the very heart of the Titan city. The melody was piercingly sweet, and resembled at times the singing of some voluptuous feminine voice. However, no human voice could have possessed that unearthly pitch, the shrill, perpetually sustained notes that somehow suggested the light of remote worlds and stars translated into sound. Ordinarily, I am not very sensitive to music. I have even been reproached for not reacting more strongly to it. But I had not gone much farther when I realized the peculiar mental and emotional spell which the far-off sound was beginning to exert upon me. There was a siren-like allurement which drew me on, forgetful of the strangeness and potential perils of my situation, and I felt a slow, drug-like intoxication of brain and senses. In some insidious manner, I know not how nor why, the music conveyed the ideas of vast but attainable space and altitude, of superhuman freedom and exultation, and it seemed to promise all the impossible splendors of which my imagination has vaguely dreamt. I like that Giles Angarth's friends make fun of him for not being into music. I feel like Giles Angarth has had a hard time. I know. You know? Yeah. Like, why is he living out in this place all by that's himself? true. Is he just trying to get away? And he mentions earlier that his life is really boring, and that's why he's never kept a diary before. Yeah, I liked that. Like, <laughs> oh, my life actually got interesting. Good. Maybe he should try listening to some music once in a while. <laughs> Start a zine, man. <laughs> Start a zine. <laughs> get in with the teeny boppers. Swing uh, with yeah. the kids. So this is the, the singing. Well, eventually we'll learn this is the flame that's singing, but this is sort of his first encounter with this... Um, strange intoxicating music that that even for a man as boring as giles angarth like (laughs) rouses something in him that makes him want to know more a mad thought was born in my mind 
the thought of how marvelous and ecstatical it would be to run forward and leap headlong into the singing fire. The music seemed to tell me that I should find at that moment of flaring dissolution all the delight and triumph, all the splendor and exultation it had promised from afar. It besought me, it pleaded with tones of supernal melody, and despite the wadding in my ears, the seduction was well-nigh irresistible. However, it had not robbed me of all sanity. With a sudden start of terror, like one who has been tempted to fling himself from a high precipice, I drew back. Then I saw that the same dreadful impulse was shared by some of my companions. The two entities with scarlet wings, whom I have previously mentioned, rose and flew towards the flame like moths toward a candle. For a brief moment the light shone redly through their half-transparent wings, ere they disappeared in the leaping incandescence, which flared briefly and then burned as before. Then, in rapid succession, a number of other beings, who represented the most divergent trends of biology, sprang forward and immolated themselves in the flame. There were creatures with translucent bodies, and some that shone with all the hues of the opal. There were winged colossi and titans who strode as with seven-league boots. And there was one being with useless, abortive wings, who crawled rather than ran to seek the same glorious doom as the rest. I wonder what the music, what music that seems to promise all the impossible splendors of which one's imagination has vaguely dreamt sounds like. Me too, because I've heard some good music in my day. I really have, <laughs> but nothing like that. So he gets to the gates of the city, uh, and there are huge gates, and the music is pouring out of this mysterious entrance in an ever-strengthening flood, and he feels this weird seduction of it. And this is, like, again, a very, like, Clark Ashton Smithian situation, this sort mm-hmm. of, uh, like, the pull of some kind of music or, or artistic thing towards an unknown world. Yeah. Um, was a, I would call it like a, almost a quintessentially Clark Ashton Smithian situation. But Giles Angarth, lame as he is, pulls himself away from the, the pull of the music and uh, once again runs away from the city. Yep. And as he was waiting there, more of those uh, shining giants were entering the city. So he watched some of them go in and then ran away. And then just before he came back again, he was smart and he took some cotton wadding to put into his ears just in case he wasn't able to fully um, right. resist the, the music this time. And sure enough, he hears it again and he's drawn and he comes in and enters the open gate. And this is like the one taste of the city that we get. He describes himself as crawling ant upon its mammoth pavements amid the measureless babble of its buildings, of its streets and arcades. Everywhere there were columns, obelisks, and perpendicular pylons of fane-like structures that would have dwarfed to those of Thebes or Heliopolis. I just, there's, there's all of this architectural potential here. And, and then it's he described, huge. It's huge. He's really small, and that comes up again in the next story, too. They're really comparatively small. He starts to, to find the, the true and the people that he thought were the true inhabitants are actually only visitors. And the true people are have nude but unswart bodies and limbs like those of caryatides, massive enough to uphold roofs and lintels of their own buildings, perhaps. They seem to just be ignoring all these other creatures and of different types that come through the city. Yeah, they're pretty cool, the... Uh... They're very chill. The native inhabitants. He mentions that they um, they have eyes. They have thin mm-hmm. mouths, thin expressionless lips, 
but he doesn't see any ears, and that might be why they're able to just exist in the city without flame affecting them. Yeah, this is true. If they can't hear, they can't. I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah. And their heads are semi-rectangular, <laughs> which is kind of cool. So there are also all kinds of other creatures that are in this city that are yeah. all driven, that all seem to be heading towards the source of this music. And he describes a couple different ones. There's like the creatures with long, translucent, blood-colored wings, intricately veined and ribbed, that were sort of that I guess are sort of one can assume flying through the city towards this. Uh, yeah. This thing. Mm-hmm. He also, I like that he also doesn't. He doesn't describe them ever as like aliens or monsters, just as creatures who have evolved along a different pathway right, than yeah. humanity. Yeah. And once again, we get a, like a sort of an emphasis on the size of the city that, that it, he's like, he's walking for miles inside of the city, which is yeah. again crazy. Like this place is just enormous. Yeah. So he comes to a great square and then he finds the temple um, and all of the uh, pilgrims are still heading in there and he goes in with them. Even though his ears are stuffed, he could still hear and feel the music and yes. it's still pulling him. The vibrations are still very strong. Fortunately, though, he did put the uh, the cotton in his ears yeah. before going any farther. Once he actually got into this, te- once he well, once he started getting into the temple, and he goes down this whole long row of pillars. We should probably talk about the scene inside of this temple because it's pretty crazy. Like it's yeah. a huge, huge shrine, and as soon as he's in it, he kind of intrinsically realizes that that all of these beings he calls transdimensional beings that they're all pilgrims that they've all mm-hmm. come to like worship this flame that's in the middle of the of the shrine um but even that even though there are hundreds of them they're all dwarfed by the cosmic immensity of this like ch- chamber shrine it's so um, cool and they all are like the glib way of describing it would be it's a little bit like a, a rave. Like they're all sort of like <laughs> right. dancing and uh, bowing their heads. Like it, to my mind, like in in time with whatever this ecstatic music coming from the flame is. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're singing along with it too, right? It says the voices of several deep as booming drums or sharp as the stridulation of giant insects were audible in the singing of the fountain. So it's a pretty so cool. like amazing religious scene that he's seeing here yeah yeah and the um nobody's paying attention to anybody else really everybody is just they're they're so fixated on the sound on the experience on the vibrations of it all that while he's paying some attention to them he's even not paying as much attention as he could be to everyone around him which is why we don't know anything about this whole city yeah Um, i also love that there's behind the uh the flame there's giant statues of heroes and gods and demons from as he says earlier cycles of alien time i'm glad that he's able to infer all this yeah yeah i know i know um and so yeah and in the center of this there is the flame itself which is green and dazzling and it it's he describes it as blinding even when he turns away from it the air is filled with well webs of intricate color and swiftly changing arabesques uh so it's just like it is a monumentally powerful thing whatever this flame is this freaks him out a bit so he sees it he watches it all happen and then he scoots because he realizes that this is kind of a terrifying spell well also the uh after a while the um the flame flares up and then starts to recede it starts this is true yeah and then uh the other some other pilgrims there 
kind of turn and leave too because they feel the pull of, I guess the flame has been satisfied. I don't know. We never get the full story about this flame. Yeah. And one of the tall armored creatures says something to him. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what he says. He's probably like, oh, I guess we'll get in there next time. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> what do you think? I just imagine Clark Ashton Smith, like, I don't know when they invented like bug light traps, but in, in, in my mind, this story must have its genesis, or like this part of its genesis, in like watching bugs head towards the light, like you're. Well, yeah. I mean, they've always had, you know, they've always noticed that that moths and whatnots fly to the flame, but the zapping part. Uh, oh yeah, or it could, it could, or it could, yeah, could just have been contemplating that particular yeah. turn of phrase, like moths like, to a flame, especially since the first ones he sees go in are basically like moths. Like, right. Yeah. Like they yeah. literally are described like moths. So. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing, like, oh, this is an old, this is a take on the old moth to a flame story, just with mm -hmm. what, what could pull a person in there, or a sentient being. Yeah, and it's what? an awesome extrapolation from that idea, I think. Yeah. Um, what is it that draws the moths in? So this is where the story loses me a little bit, because I don't quite understand why he needs to bring Evan Lee, his friend. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I wish that Evan Lee was cut, not cut from the story, but I'm a little bit like, really, do we need Evan Lee? I feel um, like it's his his way to say I'm not actually crazy, and also to make his friends like it makes me think of a bit of Lovecraft in right. that you know he told Lovecraft about this area, and Lovecraft then w would go on to be so excited when he got the story, and I almost wonder if Ebenly, although an artist, so maybe a little bit more of the Smith in him, right. uh, was supposed to be a bit of a Lovecraft or Loveman representation that his friends could write themselves into. I kind of took it that uh, Angar since he is kind of boring and this isn't <laughs> like the city is affecting him, but it's not affecting him as greatly as it could. But he's still, when he leaves, he's, he's still thinking about it. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to go back again, but I want to take somebody else with me. So maybe he wants to choose somebody who can really see it for what it is. Yeah. And Evan Lee does seem to fit the bill for that. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, it's just a weird bit of story structure to me. I think I it guess is. just because it's like, I can't, I can't quite understand what justifies it in terms of like the story. Like, what is it that, like, what is it about Evan Lee's experience with the flame that that Smith felt was necessary to get? And the only thing I can think of is that it is awesome how he describes Evan Lee like dancing towards the flames. Yeah, like, yeah. like I mm -hmm. kind of feel like he, and since it's a since it's a journalist era uh, diary structure, he couldn't have right. Garth describe himself dancing towards this the flames. This is true. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think you just answered it. You cracked the that's, case. That's probably it, because the whole part where he comes back and then says, eh, you know, it, it wouldn't make sense unless he had thrown the journal back through the flame or something. Yeah. So so what happens is is that he brings his friend Evan Lee, who is, as we said, described as an artist, and is like, dude, you got to check this out. <laughs> it is going to blow your artistic mind. First of all, his name is Felix Evan Lee, which is an <laughs> awesome name. It is an awesome name. I keep thinking that Evan Lee sounds a lot like Ivan, but I think that's yeah. probably just <gasps> too. I do too. Yeah. But maybe Ivan has like tons of kids, and like when they came to America, they changed their name to Evan Lee for some reason. Maybe. Could be. I mean, and then they met the giant <laughs> rabbits. and When they uh, came to America. And they're all actually a Zedarak. All... <laughs> <laughs> We're still looking for you, Zedarak. <laughs> we will find you. <laughs> so... Evanly comes. I don't like what's the. I don't remember what the time frame is. I don't. I don't know if Evanly is like another weirdo who lives in a hut, or if he has to come from some other place. I guess they don't really say. Yeah, I don't think he says. He's another Californian, so he's not yeah. from that far away. But yeah. it doesn't say if he's a city folk or a country folk. And so, he loves it. Yeah, yeah. He just loves the the. This is the sort of thing 
whose existence I have hitherto merely suspected and have never been able to hint at in my most imaginative drawings. Loves his mind. But again, like, yeah, like, I mean, I know I've said it before, but it's such a quintessentially, like, Clark Ashton Smithian, a bunch of artists, like, step yeah. into another dimension and, like, can't resist the pull of it. In this mm-hmm. case, it's not the past. It's, you know, like, uh... Another dimension. Sideways. Yeah, yeah. Like a visionary, uh, strange world. But they go and they have basically the same... I mean, nothing Nothing different really happens Mm-mm. when he brings well, Heavenly into the thing, right? Or no? Uh, well, Ang- no, it's the same, but Angarth still fills his ears with cotton and wants yeah. Ebonly to do the same. But Ebonly's like, no, I don't want to... I don't want to quote deaden any new sensation I may experience. I like to imagine that that um, Angar fills his ears with cotton, like when other people turn the radio on because he just <laughs> hates the music so much. Yeah. So like when they he always has some on him. Yeah, exactly. He's like <laughs> this again. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I shan't be participating in this frivolity. <laughs> tut tut. Um, so they, yeah, they go uh, into the chamber again, and once again we have the the dancing and the singing flame, and once again we have the pilgrims. And I don't know why. Does it say that Angarth ever warns Ebonly what's going to happen, or does he just, no. does he just slip his mind? <laughs> I, I feel like he must have warned him something. No, he he does mention it. He does take that into account. He says that even though he has the cotton wadding in his ears, the music is still affecting him. And it's affecting him enough so that he forgets that Ebonly might be in oh, danger right. by it. So he, right. he's in. But it would feel like well. offering him the cotton wadding in the first place. He would have said, "Hey, dude, right? You need to put this some is, in your ears. Yeah, you should do this because I've seen people leap into this flame. Maybe he didn't tell him that last part. <laughs> Maybe this was all an elaborate scheme to murder Ebonly. <laughs> <Yeah>. Worst <laughs> friend ever. <laughs> I shall cast you into an interdimensional flame that I happen to have discovered. This is the weirdest Hitchcock story ever. I was just <laughs> thinking that. Like, this would be the weirdest Hitchcock Presents episode ever put on film. <laughs> so what happens to Evanly? Nothing good. Yeah, there's tons of worshippers this time. The throng of worshippers was larger in this time, and the, the jet of flame was mounting steadily as they entered. So it was in their, uh, it was in the big, the big throes of its sacrifice. Orgiastic. Yeah. Whatever. And... As it's rising, creatures start jumping into it. Uh, and then he almost forgot that Ebonly was there. He's almost forgotten until Ebonly dances by him. Somebody should read that actual first. Uh, I-, I can read it. Uh, so Ebonly ran forward in a series of leaps that were both solemn and frenzied, like the beginnings of s- some sacerdotal dance, and hurled himself headlong into the flame. <laughs> Which is just <laughs> awesome, because I just imagined, like, in my mind, it's more like a weird, like, Evanly suddenly realizes, no, like ballet, like Evanly suddenly <laughs> realizes that he, you know, can do the splits and like jumps in the air and like pirouettes right. and then like twirls and like jumps into the flame. And then I like the fire enveloped him. It flared up for an instant with a more dazzling greenness. And that was all. Now, as I write this, I am wondering why I came back again to the human world. Words are futile to express what I have beheld and experienced, and the change that has come upon me beneath the play of incalculable forces in a world of which no other mortal is even cognizant. Literature is nothing more than a shadow. Life, with its drawn-out length of monotonous, reiterative days, is unreal and without meaning now, in comparison with the splendid death which I might have had, the glorious doom which is still in store. 
I have no longer any will to fight the ever-insistent music which I hear in memory, and there seems to be no reason at all why I should fight it. Tomorrow, I shall return to the city. He's horrified by the whole thing. He has a regret. He is horrified at what happened to his friend, even though clearly it was almost 100% his own fault. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And he, but there's something else. He's like, I kind of wish that I had gone with him because this this flame, it's like, it's getting to him. Uh, And he's really kind of saddened that he didn't go with. He manages to pull himself back from the city one last time to write this last uh, journal entry. Yeah. Which is useful for us because and useful for our, useful for Phil Pashte. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder, like, I'm going to. Well, I guess we'll talk about drugs next time. <laughs> this whole thing. Yeah, like... I mean, we have to have kind of a set of theories. I feel at the at the end of Beyond the Singing Flame, a set of wrap up theories. Uh... Well, here's just knowing about this one story. If you mm-hmm. guys had that experience and you could jump into the flame, not knowing anything about the second story. Would you? I don't think that he has a choice, right? If I were Angarth, I probably would. Because he has, let's face it, he's a boring dude with a boring life. Yeah, If I were me, I wouldn't. Because, yeah, it kind of sucks here sometimes, but it's interesting. I don't know if I would or not. That's true. Ultimately. Well, it's interesting, too, because he just, he, it's weird because he really does assume that he will leap to his death. But there is, and yet there's something about it that is appealing enough to him that he knows he's going to do it. Yeah. Um... Which is just sort of like fascinating. Like it is, it is. I mean, we'll talk more about this in the next episode, I guess, too. But yeah. it, it's like everything about both these stories strikes me as like crazily ahead of its time because this just feels exactly like an addict metaphor to me. Like mm-hmm. the person who knows, like it's a thing that is that is super attractive to them that they cannot resist and that they know is going to kill them, and yet they continue to do it anyway. Yeah, which is kind of like I don't know. Again, I don't think it was written as a drug metaphor, but it's so 100% on point as one that it's right. um, kind of fascinating. I also was thinking of it as a kind of a religious metaphor. Like, you don't right. know what's going to happen after, but still, there's some people who spend all of their time engaging in religious pursuits, right, not yeah. knowing this is true. what happens at the end. You yeah. know? Uh, Just the promise of ecstasy. As it turns out, the flame is not the end. There's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. Which yep. we'll find out next time in Beyond the Singing Flame. Beyond the city of the singing flame. I think it's just beyond the singing flame, Tim. Beyond the singing <laughs> flame. <laughs> it, can you sing it in a falsetto? Beyond the city. I mean, yep. beyond <laughs> the singing flame. You would make a terrible devotee of the singing flame. <laughs>